We don't teach about these women to students. We don't include them into any galleries mentally or physically at the universities or elsewhere. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So it's not our usual podcast today covering what's happening day by day in these worlds of universal jurisdiction and courts in The Hague. No, this time we're joined by Imi Talgren. Hi, Imi. Hi. Imi is based at the University of Helsinki, and we were just chatting before the podcast, and she explained that this project that we're going to concentrate on now has its origins or was being put together during the early days of COVID. And during that time, she managed to get 50 contributors from six continents to help work with her to provide a set of portraits of women in international law. And that means that she's created this collection of what are very thoughtful essays featuring a selection of very interesting women. And they've been put together like an art gallery or a museum. A portrait gallery, a gallery of portraits with a camera exhibition. So we thought it would be interesting to invite Imi to discuss some of the individual portraits, not all, because then we would have a three-hour, four-hour podcast. As we should. But uh, we want to explore a bit who you picked and, and, and what's the idea behind the collection. You already said it's a temporary exhibition, temporary portrait gallery of women in the general uh, permanent exhibition of international law. And is this because we just don't see very many women often portrayed as founders or very important in international law? Yes. So, I mean, I think that is my impression, not, not only my impression. So if you ask the question, uh, do you have examples of the contrary? And that is why I'm trying to find examples of women in the past to show whether they were familiar to you or not familiar to you. Anytime I talk about this book, to audiences. I tend to start by asking the audiences to name first three women before the 1950s in international law and then before the 1990s. And so far, the replies I get is the first question is like zero or perhaps some, some, some people remember like one name. And even before the 1990s, I had to get any names. So I think that tells actually quite a lot because my audiences are not laymen, they are international lawyers. There's a phrase you use, new names and forgotten faces. So is it that people are forgotten or is it that they are new to the audience? I think it's it's quite complex, actually. They are not forgotten by everybody, obviously. Uh, they might have a niche area. This is not the first ever project on women and history in international law, but they are not in the uh, collective uh, images of history of the discipline. So they have not been yet allowed into the gallery of international or in the sense of the authorized gallery of history. So that's why we don't see them in the textbooks. We don't see them in the monographs of international law history. So there are some fringe women on the fringes of the discipline, but they are not involved in anything that we could see as authorized, valued kind of history of international law. And that's why we don't teach about these women to students. We don't include them into any galleries mentally or physically at the universities or elsewhere. Now, there are, of course, exceptions, but they remain exceptions at the moment. And this book is about these exceptions. Trying to involve uh, more and more exceptions means that they are not so exceptional anymore. So we are turning in a way a little bit the, the order of things between the margin and the core. 
And we wanted to take a few of the portraits, and we're very tempted to start with your vestibule of the legendary ancients, which sounds wonderful and almost like a computer game that my, my son would play. But we are going to leave that to last and go around the gallery in a different direction. Because I thought it might be interesting to start with the Hall of Diversity of Feminist Activism in international law. And I was particularly attracted by the story of Yayori Matsui, who was this Japanese journalist, and obviously as we're journalists, I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. She was also a civil society activist in the mid-20th century, and she was a key figure in mobilizing the Women's International War Crimes Tribunal on Japan's military sexual slavery that was held in Tokyo. Can you tell us a bit more about her and about why she was picked, who wrote about her and so on? Yes, so that is Kina Yoshida's uh, quite extraordinary chapter portrait. It is a biography, of course, first, but it's also in a way a case study, I would say. It's a case study of how the change of balance between the roles of individuals versus the roles of states in international law has moved. So she tells about the woman who was not a lawyer, who was a journalist, an activist, as you say, but who managed to create something that we normally see only created by states. That shows also the growth of the strength of the civil society, in particular in the files of criminal law, of course, international criminal law. But it shows also how the past geographical and, and perhaps cultural barriers in international law have been overcome in a way. It is actually an example also of using a model which has been considered for a long time Western and actually considered quite negatively in Japanese legal circles, uh, not only in the right-wing circles, but also in the, let's say, more generally also in the mainstream Japanese legal culture. And yet she was able to convince her own country, but also the other countries who have been on the victim's side in the war, to get together and, and in a way mobilize a civil society movement, which is in a way imitating the state-based models, but doing them differently. So it's like a local invention, a hybrid innovation that she was getting at. But that was not all. She was also writing on many other topics. And I think you really would need to read Kina Yoshida's chapter because it is wonderful, wonderful, really. I feel very unaccomplished as a journalist. This is now the <laughs> second journalist I know of that has started a movement that started a tribunal. Uh, the other one is, of course, the famous Mirko Klarin, Yugoslav journalist, whose call for a tribunal got the Yugoslav tribunal going. And so I feel, Janet, that we should put our combined efforts together and, okay. and, okay. and start our own tribunal. <laughs> I'm not prepared to go that far, but I am interested that you did actually make quite a lot of these portraits about activists. I mean, there's this whole winter garden of abolition and resistance, which has a lot of different activists they're dealing with the issues of slavery, racism, imperialism. Maybe this is a question from my own ignorance, but how does that relate to you know what I think are kind of conventional international law that they're working on these big activist issues? Yes, I would say that these big activist issues, as you say, um, the anti-slavery movement, the anti-racist movement, and of course the anti-imperialism movement, or you could say now, of course, the whole idea of colonization, decolonization, and the Twail movement today. I think all these are in a way forerunners to international law. So these were societal movements. They were quite different, actually. If you are, if you are referring now to um, Anna Julia Cooper, the chapter being by Chris Kevers, Mary Ann Shad by Sarah Riley Case, and Ava Paivadia by Vasukine Saya. These are quite different cases, but they have the similarity in the sense that they were forerunners. 
their stories, the portraits, uh, and also the stories of their life, the context of their life, are circling around what we today would call intersectionality or racialized identity uh, and activism. So they were, in a way, the ones who were amongst many other people, of course, these were never like lonely, lonely runners, bringing to international law, bringing to the states of table uh, in the negotiations by states, issues that then First, we're not considered international law, but today are yeah, definitely international. If you look at the Convention Against Racism, I mean, it's all about international law. It's actually in the core. It's, it's one of the biggest societal questions actually today. How do you relate to migration? Migration was one of the causes of, of Marian Shad. How do you relate to um, population control? That was the cause of our Vadia. Or how do you relate to race? Anna Yuria Cooper. So these are the biggest global challenges, actually, and these were the forerunners, and they are not known to us. And I think that is quite curious, actually. That's why I think it's definitely one of the galleries you need to read in a book. Another really fascinating section is the portrait of artists and visionaries of international law. Janet picked out Diane Otto's portrait of Shirley Hazard. Uh, she was a young Australian typist at the UN, and she becomes a best-selling author of fiction and essays, but her insider views of the UN are disillusioned but not hopeless, as Otto says, and she argues that they should be compulsory reading for all. Can you explain why? Why is it important for us to read fictional or artistic impressions of international law, do you think? I think um, what Diotto is doing, she's using in a wonderful way uh, the story of Shirley Hazard to contest the forms and the sources, the concepts of knowledge, and also the quite restricted scope of the accepted, authorized social identities that are producing the knowledge today in international law. So, in the past and today, it is already typically somehow celebrated as dared, refreshing, if a famous international law professor or a judge dares to squeeze out some poetry, some, some verses, many in English often, at the last page of a journal. I think there's so much more to it, and this, this chapter is about it. Shirley Hazard, of course, was a very special case. She became a very famous author and also remained politically active all her life. What she writes about the UN is not only fiction, because it's based on her own experiences. I think what you today would call it, it would be sort of autofiction or something like that, although that is not entirely true either. But I think anybody who is trying to understand where and how international law is negotiated needs to go to the UN also and see it. And the way she saw it at her time, it's quite exceptional, and she has been able to convey it. And, and what, what the portrait conveys is the fact that we have to open our eyes and, and ears and try to understand international law also as a social process and not only somehow law in the books. There are so many threads that I just want to follow up with you, but I, I feel obliged to keep on going around your gallery. So I'm going to move on to the section of the breakers of the glass ceiling, the, quote, first and only, unquote, in international institutions. And um, I saw in your introduction to all of this, you asked the question, why is this firstness uh, of some of these women? Why is that actually interesting? I mean, because some of these women weren't actually brilliant role models, I understand, but their firstness is still relevant. That is, of course, a trope of this women's history or feminist history or even like post-colonial history whatsoever, racial histories. It is a typical um, mode of representation that makes it possible to talk about progress. So the idea being quite linear. So there is nobody and then there was the first and that was progress and this is the end of the story. So this is a typical way to, to see things. There was this court without any women. Now there is one and, and <laughs> that's the happy end. 
what I'm trying to show in my opening, but also in the chapter that I co-authored on the legendary first of the firsts in international law, uh, Suzanne Bastide, who was a French lawyer, who was first to first in France, in all possible uh, fora, basically, as a professor of international law, as a judge, etc., in different committees. Uh, she was an activist in academic collaboration, international collaboration academically. And then she became an international judge at the UN in the administrative court. She was also uh, the first woman at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, the legendary woman, the first all over the place. What I'm trying to look into is like what made her the first and what happened after. What kind of conditions made it possible that she was so, so very first in all these places? And what happened after her? On what conditions? So I think the firstness is not a trope to be condemned or tried. It means something when people are noticing that actually a woman also can be uh, selected. We have had this kind of firsts quite recently also. At the ILA, for example, we only now have a woman leading the whole show, etc., etc. But it is also quite useful to understand that it doesn't necessarily change the course of the history. That the progress is not arriving by the one woman, that the one woman might not even be feminist. And the structures and hierarchies that have impeded women from entering are still remaining after the first or second or third woman arrives. As we can see also at today in the, in the, in the selections to the different tribunals and courts, we can see that one woman is not able to change the whole show or perhaps not even willing. And that is the question. So in my book, we are trying to question the style of writing history of women as a, this cliche style of the trailblazers, the quite essentialized heroes, actually, because the idea in the book was not to somehow replace the great men history with great women history, but try to write different kind of histories. And that's why contesting also the Meaning and the importance given to the firstness is one of these steps that we're trying to do. Just a side question for me. How important is it that these women should see themselves or can see themselves as feminists? Why do you give that such weight, Yumi? I don't think I give it that much weight. I don't think so. I'm contesting exactly this, actually, that the assumption being often that, well, there is the first woman and that is somehow related to feminism. And then that woman must be a feminist. And then whatever happens thereafter is progress. So this is exactly the quite cliche understanding of history, uh, of associations, of institutions, of tribunals, of courts, that is still somehow behind in all these histories. The few we see, we don't see many, but this is a cliche and we are trying to find it, actually. I think the only person we fully recognized as one of the people who were being portrayed her was uh, Bertha von Suttner. And that's because her bust is in the Peace Palace two times. She's seen in her very Victorian clothes, lots of lace and high headdress. She's seen also in the short film that was made of the opening of the Peace Palace. But she was a salonniere or a networker behind the scenes. How seriously should we really take her role? I think we should take her quite seriously, actually. And, and she was actually taken quite seriously already at her time because she was in receiving the Nobel Prize. A salonniere, that sounds very frivolous somehow, perhaps because it's in French and it sounds very feminine. But in substance, as, as Janne Neumann shows in her wonderful portrait of, of Unsutner, she was very active in The Hague, of course, as a networker, but she was also a very well-read author, author of fiction, romance uh, novels also. 
And I think the fact that she was wearing this hat and all that did not make the substance of the discussions that she was trying to engage in not very different from the other discussions which were held in, in costumes, like suits rather. Uh, so I think there is much downgrading going on about this salonier business and the fact that somebody writes novels. And that is also one sign of the many, many, many different ways in which writing history remains quite gendered. So these are gendered tokens we are giving the different types of activity and, and personalities. And this relates a bit to what I said about Shirley Hazard, uh, that we should somehow open up our eyes and understand that international law is very, very wide, uh, cultural and social project, not only legal, not only textbook legal kind of project, and that produces knowledge inside the discipline. I think it's funny that you picked up her as, the, as a socialite who really pushed this Peace Palace project forward, because in Dutch history, much is made of the role of the Dutch queen at the time, uh, Wilhelmina, who pushed forward this project. When you were asking to think about women before a certain time, that was one of the things I pictured, but that's more Dutch royal history, and she's more seen as a dreamy pacifist person who had this idea of this, this Peace Palace. Too idealistic. Yeah, too idealistic, but but the Peace Palace is still here and we still have hearings in it. When I enter that big sugar cake of a building, I think of like, well, they thought of it and it's still here and it's it's still relevant. So that, that's very interesting. It is, it is actually. I was recently in the Hague. I don't go there anymore so often. I used to live there. And I was going there also and looking at all these different reliques, actually, from the past, of course, and now that I have been happily editing this book. I look at those reliques also differently. And I had the chance to talk with two of the women judges today in office. And that was quite interesting how they related to that working place, how they related to that history. And uh, now they also are happily having this book on the tables, in the Hague, <laughs> in the court. Let's circle back to your, uh, your ancients. I noted that your contributors helped to pick an alternative quote, mother of international law, unquote, the wife of the person who's considered the father, Hugo Grotius. This is Maria van Reichersberg, who was married at age of 19 and, quote, she did not even speak Latin. But what role did she actually play? I pick the idea of the mother because it's a stereotypic um, thing, still quite present to talk about the father of international law. And I thought it might be interesting to look like, how did the father go around? becoming so famous and with whom did he do it actually how did Hugo become so famous and how did he manage to write all these things being imprisoned and then getting out of the castle etc so we, we know all these stories so this is the legend of our discipline basically but we don't often think about like what happened when he died how did his book still survive who actually translated them who made sure that they are available who was bringing them different places and that's how I found Maria and then I was able to convince, actually, the biographer of Hugo Crossius, a wonderful, wonderful author, to write a chapter about Maria that was taking some negotiation because he was first saying, like you say, oh, but how could she have played any role in international law? Because she didn't even speak any Latin. And why did she not speak Latin? Because she was not allowed to go to school, of course, and she had nine or ten children. What I was trying to show in this, that there is a lot behind and next to and after the father of international law and many other fathers that have followed since, and the ones who are still in activity today, they often also have a horde of assistants at home, in the office, etc. We just don't see them, actually, and they are not paid often. If they are paid, they are not paid very much, and their names are not often mentioned. 
This is not exactly true about Maria, though, because she was at some point of the Dutch history actually quite famous, and she has been written about in the Netherlands, but not inside the discipline of international law. But in the Netherlands, she has some notoriety. She was, I would argue, a key member, actually, of the household academy, with the help of children and other family members, like uncles and aunts, etc. They all were contributing to the production of Rossi's books. They were translating, they were editing, they were taking care of the rights, they were transporting these books, they were fighting for him, they were arguing in letters in his favor, etc. There were so many little hands to help, and the leader of that group of people was at some point uh, Maria, the wife. At the end of your exhibition, you have the traditional exit to the gift shop. One of the potential gifts or takeaways of the book, uh, there Hilary Charlesworth offers... She's one of the judges at the ICJ. Yes, she offers the courage to question the content and quality of the ubiquitous galleries of great male international lawyers. So have you given us courage, Emmy? Yes, uh, Hilary Charlesworth was one of the key members uh, of the team in a way, although she was not able to write the chapter because she was too busy and we understand why she was too busy because she was becoming a judge. That kind of courage was there and she was giving it with, not with a spoon, but with uh, with uh, loads and loads of courage coming all the time. And there are many other women like that also, and men also. So this is not the women man thing. This is about what do you look at when you want to see the past? Are you looking at the men only or are you looking around? So this is not about being a man or woman today, of course, or, or anything else. This is not about sex uh, being binary. It's about being interested to see what was next to the main known person, what was behind, what happened after. Because we still have situations where we have quite famous books about history of international law that actually ignore the question of women and sex and, and gender totally. It's still se- seemingly totally okay to write about the French Revolution, for example, and totally set aside authors like Olympe de Courge, who is also having a chapter in the book, or Mary Wollstonecraft. To me, it's a bit like writing a history of South Africa of the 20th century and not mentioning Mandela and the apartheid. So, And international law still seems to allow for this. So I think this book is trying to put that question on the table. Like, how is it possible that we are so late with the gender question in the present, but also in the past? And that is a course that you need to have to ask. But I think the question merits being asked. Imi, thank you so much for uh, spending time chatting through the chapters that all of your contributors have helped put together. We've got a few questions that we like to ask that you're not allowed to prepare for. And one of them is, do you have a favourite court case that you like to teach about or like to discuss with people over the dinner table? Is there one particular case that you find yourself turning back to again and again? Not really, actually. There is no court case as such. I, I think I might be turning to different teams about the ICC because that was my old professional background. So I follow all the cases at the ICC and I tend to turn back to them quite a lot. But uh, I'm not particularly having a one case in mind. I think that would be too restrictive. But I definitely follow international criminal law very, very tightly. And that is something that is actually quite interesting today, of course, for many reasons. And we, of course, always ask for reading, listening, uh, watching uh, recommendations. We obviously all recommend your own book, but do you have any other book that you read or are reading that was really helpful in, in making this book or that you really want to recommend to our listeners? I am reading at the moment, actually, for my next project, which is in a way a follow-up from the current one. 
I'm reading about the file of reproduction because I find it fascinating, actually. Population control, reproductive rights. And there were six or seven of the characters of my current book who were involved in those files in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I'm reading backwards, actually. Now I'm reading about the first books that were actually questioning the whole idea of the reproductive rights. Uh, so I'm reading into reproductive wrongs. And there is a wonderful book, quite polemical book, uh, a bit aged already, but by, by Betsy Hartman, Reproductive Rights and Wrongs. And that is wonderful. I'm also reading about the gender side, which is now actually a concept that we are associating maybe with India, but used to be, of course, associated to, to China. So this is my professional reading, basically. Can I say anything about funny readings? Yes, yes, please. please. Do. Yeah, so I'm reading something that is related to international law, but it's much nicer to read now. And it's, a, it's actually at my bedside table, but it's in French. Well, it is Une histoire du droit international en bande dessinée. So it is a, a comics about international law. You'll like that. Yes. Who is it by? It's by Olivier Corten from Brussels and uh, Pierre Klein. And it's a wonderful reading. It's the whole history of international law in comics. Well, great. Thank you so much for your uh, suggestions, Emmy. We'll put them all into the uh, webpage. And thank you so much for making time to chat to us and to talk through what your project with all of your contributors and taking us around your gallery. It sounded wonderful. I'm going to definitely read more of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word. 